0: Welcome to Episode 153, Our Role Moving Forward, Reproductive Justice as Harm Reduction and Ethical Imperative, featuring Dr. Orisha Bowers, Dr. Jamie Marich, and Elizabeth E. Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. To learn more about the free CE credit associated with this podcast episode, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth E. and We are recording this interview in the days immediately following the Supreme Court decision about Roe v. Wade and now the removal of federal protections for abortion rights and reproduction um, and reproductive health. And I am honored to be joined today by two folks that can speak to this in a very um, experienced and special way. The first person I'd like to introduce you to today is Dr. Arisha Bowers. She is the National Conference Director for National Harm Reduction Coalition. And as she says, she is also a sex educator in the Bible Belt. And also we have back joining us Dr. Jamie Marich. Uh, She is a trauma expert and author. You may have heard from her before on our podcast episodes and in our courses. I've invited them here today to have a conversation about our role in understanding what's happening around us and what reproductive justice is and how we as clinicians are part of this conversation. Before we dive into better introductions of uh, the folks that join me today, I want to say to our listeners, this interview inherently is going to be discussing sometimes sexual violence and may use language that may be upsetting. And we also shared that this conversation may include references to umbrella terms like women's rights and human rights. And included in this heading, we want to note are the rights of transgender gender and cisgender people, non-binary people, women, females, girls, and people with internal reproductive organs. But I want to make that important note because Many times we think about this as quote-unquote women's rights, and actually it's much bigger than that. So on that note, Dr. Orisha Bowers, please tell us about yourself, um, how you came to do the work that you're doing.
1: Thank you again for having me today. Um, I came to this work as a person who was interested in supporting people to get the resources that they need. Um, I initially started as an HIV-AIDS advocate in the community working with black and brown folks who were impacted or infected with HIV AIDS. Um, And that was 22 long years ago. Um, I have continued to do this work out of a space of love uh, and for a desperate need for the liberation of people um, in my community and all around who are impacted by these intersecting issues.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. And I just want to say to our listeners in your heads, please say thank you to both of them, because this decision just came down a number of days ago. And even though we saw leaked documents a number of weeks ago, I don't think any of us were really prepared for the gravity of what was going to unfold on Friday. Um, so thank you, Dr. Bowers. And Dr. Jamie Marriage. tell us a little bit about you and how you relate to this work. So trauma is... The definition of or the centerpiece
2: of all the work I do both as an educator as a writer I'm still processing what's happened in the last several days and weeks Uh, but you know Beth as you reached out to me about wanting to do this episode what I feel I can most offer you know is really not from my perspective as Jamie marriage trauma expert But I am somebody who regrettably worked in the pro-life movement for many years. I grew up religious. A lot of people who follow my work know that about me, know that a concept called spiritual abuse is something that I teach and I train on. I do feel the perspective I can offer in this discussion is to kind of give you some insight into what people who are against reproductive justice and freedom are doing right now.
0: Thank you. Um, Thank you both. And for our listeners, please know, We're going to cram as much as we can into this hour um, in defining terms, in describing resources, in identifying some of the legal and ethical considerations that we may be facing as clinicians. And as we dive into these topics, I want to note I am not an attorney uh, and nothing that we talk about is legal advice. And we always recommend that you go back to your state organizations, because especially right now, what used to be held as something big and federal is now being handled by states. So it's very important that you are following your state organizations, you know, your liability insurance, things like that, because those are ultimately going to be your guiding lights. And so as we're talking today, I'm joining from California. so. We're joining from different backgrounds, from different places that are going to be affected differently mm-hmm. by how this is going to be unrolled. So just a big asterisk there for our listeners. Um, on that note, uh, Dr. Bowers, I'm going to start with you. Can you start by just even defining what reproductive justice is? Yes. Reproductive
1: justice is a human rights framework that essentially um, was started in 1994 by a group of African-American women who were, were just fed up with not being heard, the needs of Black women not being heard. Um, and in 1994, these individuals put together this framework, this intersectional framework that says every woman or person has the human right to decide if and when she or they will have a baby and the conditions under which they will give birth. They have a human right to decide if they will not have a baby and their options for preventing or terminating a pregnancy. They have a right to parent the children they already have and have the necessary social support in a safe environment and healthy communities without fear of violence from individuals or the government And they have a human right to express their sexuality and spirituality without violence or shame. Um, And that is, in a nutshell, basically what we're all seeking as people. We all want to have those basic elements to be able to live our lives and thrive safely um, and without interference from outside
0: folks. You emphasized the word safely there. We're going to have a much bigger conversation about the particular impact of these legal changes on Black and brown bodies. Can you speak a little bit about why safety is such an important part of this conversation?
1: In particular, when we're thinking about the impact of really any policy decision, but one to the magnitude of this policy decision, we have to think about the ways in which these policies are enforced and by whom. It's no secret that we already have challenges in the medical industry and other entities who are in a position to to have power over people. And so when I'm thinking about safety, I'm thinking specifically about folks who will have these laws enforced in their lives and what that can look like and what that can mean. And as I mentioned on the pre-show, this isn't just about abortions. This is about people being criminalized for some things that they may or may not have control over because not only individuals who can buy an abortion have to have that procedure. There are lots of situations and circumstances whereby a person may find themselves in a place where they need certain resources. We talked a bit about coercion and coercive practices, which Jamie will talk and expound on, but... This puts a lot of people at risk for coercive tactics that will change the trajectory of their lives. And it puts a lot of people at risk for criminalization just because they find themselves in certain situations. There's just so many ways that this particular law can be used or the overturning of this law can be used to
0: in a punitive way that can have a negative impact on people and their families. The statistic that's coming to mind for me is the fact that Black women are significantly more likely to die during childbirth, for example. And we know that there are known biases, not only against women, but partic- particularly against people who have internal reproductive organs, particularly if they're people of color. When the news broke on Friday, I think everybody's brains go to very specific places based on their conditioning or their knowledge. And can you kind of Expound on that from your perspective, when you've looked at this through so many different lenses and have spent your career evaluating how reproductive rights affect different communities.
1: Yes. Throughout my time uh, working in reproductive health rights and justice, it has been uh, a priority for me around this idea of making sure that people have the correct scientific information about their bodies and how to... You know, make informed decisions. And in a lot of black and brown communities that people do not have access to this information. And so they're making decisions steeped in morality code and respectability. And they're not necessarily making the decisions that might be right for them and in a lot of cases when you're already living in a situation of, of poverty or other you know environmental challenges you mentioned about maternal health people are already having the odds stacked against them right and so if you add all those pieces up you're just bound to have what we what we now call adverse experiences that are going to impact you and as you said generations of of people Uh, Because these are cycles and institutional biases that continue on and date back to eugenics. A lot of the attitudes that people have around medical care and around pain management, around mental health are all rooted in that racially biased type of science. And so we're seeing the outcomes that people are experiencing even today still rooted in those mindsets that are racially negative when it comes to black and brown folks that we're just seen as an inferior race by so many institutions and that you know that plays out in the drug war that plays out in reproductive health and reproductive health care that plays out in the healthcare care industry as a whole as pain management and you know now we have an opiate crisis like all of these things are rooted in those foundations of racially motivated policies that are really just born out of ignorance and not anything that makes any sense, <laughs> so the patriarchy and all of those things continue to resurface. It's it's just a bad scene for folks of color, no matter how you turn the conversation. So for me, I think that people who can afford to get abortions will be able to, or, or whatever reproductive health service, because I don't want to stigmatize abortion. People who can afford to purchase those services and resources will always have access to them. Where we begin to see a problem is in communities where people do not have access to safe resources. And and we will unfortunately begin to see people harming themselves or being harmed as a result of a lack of access to resources and
0: education. When looking at this as an enormous social determinant of health, seeing that, at this point, again, you know, for our listeners, we're recording this just days after this happened. So there's a lot that is going to unfold, a lot of challenges, a lot of changes, interpretations, and at this point, very limited case law. So I want to note that as well. But so as we sit here right now, we have these trigger laws that are already going into effect, some of them that have already been paused, um as we speak and who knows what's going to happen in the days that come but can you speak to the dangers for these particular states that don't have protections um, don't have existing laws for reproductive rights for access to, to ability to terminate a pregnancy. Um, how does that look from a demographic standpoint? Who's at risk here? And you've, you've already alluded to and mentioned individuals who, um, who have been affected by addiction, individuals who are in black and brown bodies. Speak more to that because I think we need to all expand how we're viewing this in the communities that are being affected.
1: Absolutely. I mean, folks who are houseless are at risk. Because they're people and they have lives and and they are having sex. (laughs) You know, they are at risk for uh, experiencing an unintended pregnancy. You have people who are experiencing acute mental health because of COVID. People are already isolated, depressed, and they are using whatever methods that they need to use to cope with that. Not having access to resources just puts folks further into the margins. Although we're talking specifically about black and brown bodies, this, again, this affects us all. Especially if you're in a rural community that already is limited resources. Here we go again. It's just one of those things that has a ripple effect in communities. If I could just jump in, what's coming up for me is, Soaring cost of gas prices,
2: uh, potentially tinkering with recession, regardless of a person's racial or ethnic background, although, Arisha, your points are very well taken, poverty in general, being resource struggled in general right now, the formula shortage. I mean, let's keep listing on and on about the economic impacts that are so felt by so many people in this country, and now adding on top of that, the cost of travel. And I think it's wonderful that so many of these companies have put out their intention to support travel expenses for their employees, but that's not every company and people who have to do whatever they else they may need to do to, to just live day to day. So we, we as people of any kind of compassion have to keep
1: a heart open for that too. Absolutely. That's why I say it up front, like this is an issue that has ripple effects for all people all genders, all identities.
2: And I think the reality we're talking about is our country has long been inhospitable to the poor. I can't think of a plainer way to put it. And
0: now this. One of the points that I know is really important for you and having this conversation is talking about this through the lens of harm reduction. Can you speak to that? And, and Jamie, as I say that, I'm also seeing you nod. How do you view this as part of harm reduction and also part of our social justice mandate as mental health professionals to get involved in this conversation and to be part of this.
1: Absolutely. So harm reduction,
0: like reproductive justice, is a human rights
1: framework that is centered on the principles and centering people first and centering people's health and dignity, putting them at the forefront of deciding what is best for them. So I think it's the fundamental piece of the conversation when you're thinking about something like bodily autonomy, right? I should have the ultimate say-so over what happens to me and what I decide to do concerning my body. However, with this decision, this grinds right against people's ability to make decisions for themselves. And so for me using the principles of harm reduction. I want to be clear that we're you know we're not talking about tactics. We're not talking about harm reduction strategies. We're talking about the principles of harm reduction cuz sometimes people get hung up in the whole harm reduction is needle exchanges. That's that's a tactic. But the principles of harm reduction are about restoring people's humanity and their ability to self-determine. And I think that that is right in line with reproductive justice so that they're one in the same for me, Um, because if we're doing one, we're doing the other. (laughs) So I think it is important for us to embody those principles, regardless of our vocation, so that we're able to uh, put people in the driver's seat of their own life.
2: And I guess what I have to say about harm reduction coming from the addiction field and an addiction perspective, that so much of what harm reduction has provided an answer to is this very binary thinking about addiction that you're either clean and sober or you're not, that it's total abstinence or nothing. And harm reduction has challenged that, that there is a middle ground. There, There's definitely a middle ground, and it's one that does allow us to operate with a little more dignity and i mean what i can speak to here from a religious perspective is knowing how a lot of the religious folks i train with and studied with think is yes abortion is only one part of it but what there really is is an agenda for you to accept their whole moral code hook line and sinker which for certain kinds of catholics i want to be clear means no contraception it means abstinence only sex education quote unquote it means no sex before marriage. And so this is only one part of, I think, a larger agenda that's trying to be pushed on people, at least by certain factions of the pro-life movement. And I think when people have that kind of thinking behind them, there's just an inability or an unwillingness to look at anything through a harm reduction model, that a person is in charge of their own life, agreed with all the points that Orisha said. but. I think where I bristled the most, and this is what even caused me to vomit when I was in that world, is you know no exceptions for rape or incest or life of the mother. We're pro-life unapologetically 100%. And even when I was in that world, I had such a sense of how
0: cruel can you be? Dr. Merritt, as you were talking, Dr. Bowers was nodding in what's coming up for you and what, what Jamie just said.
1: Absolutely. I think the thing that resonates with me the most is this idea that we're not complex individuals who are on a spectrum of life, right? We're in one place today and we may be somewhere completely different. Jamie's Jamie's testimony of her own experience tells us that you can be in one mindset and then you can learn and grow and change and have experiences that lead you to a different place, right? And we're all like that. We're, I'm not the same person I was when I was 20. that I am now at 46, right? If that were true, the world would be very different. Thank goodness we change and we grow and we evolve. And so this mindset that God doesn't allow change, doesn't allow us the opportunity to grow and develop when he gave us a parameter that said, I know you're not going to get it right all the time. That's why there's grace, (laughs) Well, there's mercy because I know you're going to mess up. I know you're not going to understand. I know you're going to miss the mark. It's kind of an oxymoron to think that people are not complex and growing, learning, you know, and changing. It's so unfortunate that people hang their hat on a thought or a concept without interrogating. So it's like contradictory to who we are as human beings to think like that. That's why I kept just going, yes, 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 yes. We're all here because we're not the same person we were before
0: now. <laughs> Thank goodness. Right now, I'm sensing that conversation is leading into this territory too about the trauma that's here, about spiritual abuse, mm-hmm. about abuse of power. I want to mm-hmm. open up that conversation. Just speaking for myself as a clinician, and I'm sure – many clinicians will agree, this has been the only thing (laughs) that has been talked about Mm -hmm. in my office. Um, And if If not the only, it has been very high on that list. It's certainly something that has been coming up a lot in the last few months, particularly in the last few days. And for our listeners who are probably nodding along, going like all of these things are coming up. like we're we're comparing it with family themes, like what is it like to have trust in a government and feel like they've made a choice that's no longer what's best for you? Like how do you sort through that conflict? Like these concepts, Jamie, I know spiritual abuse is something that you specialize in. Can you s- speak to that idea and and how this runs really deep for a lot of people?
2: I want to start by defining spiritual abuse, because even when a lot of people hear the term, they erroneously think it's about being persecuted for their religious or spiritual beliefs. And we, we know how that's used as an excuse to misbehave in a lot of ways. So we're shelving that. Spiritual abuse, by definition, is whenever God or any kind of spiritual religious construct is used as a weapon to control and to demean other people. We know in studying other kinds of abuse that typically for abuse to be present, there has to be a power differential present. And in spiritual abuse scholarship, those power differentials are commonly looked at as parent to child or guardian to child, grandparent, family member to child. Which is a really insidious form of it because for so many young folks, especially who are queer and growing up, mom and dad or grandma or grandpa or grandparent are your god because they're feeding you, they're clothing you, and you have to do whatever they say in order to have basic survival needs met. So that's an example of a power differential, uh, pastoral figure to congregant, and that can be a priest, a minister, a rabbi, a guru, a yoga teacher, there's there's so many, because di- whenever I teach on spiritual abuse, I always want to be clear, I'm not picking on any one group, because it happens in so many different religious and spiritual organizations. Uh, but another example of the power differential that we can see is really what's essentially a state-sponsored spiritual abuse, where a leader of a nation is willing their edicts on a group of people who are powerless to do anything about it. You know an advocate might say, well, your power is to vote, but we see how voting suppression is happening now in fuller force to keep people from voting. And there's kind of this sense of powerlessness that even if we do vote and turn the tide, that the other side is just gonna claim an election is stolen. So all of this is really feeling like what so much of the scholarship on spiritual abuse has traditionally talked about as this state-sponsored regime, to get people in line with their agenda, to exert power and control. So I, I think there's that. There's, there's that element of spiritual abuse that we can look at what has happened as a real example of that. But more importantly, you know, Beth, it's looking at how individual people are affected. By this, because in my office for years and in my work for years, I have worked with individuals who are clearly struggling and wounded because of something that has happened in the name of God. And for a lot of people, there's great shame even naming it as that, because they were raised with messages of how dare you challenge God, how dare you challenge the church. And so, one of my missions, really, as a trauma educator, has been even naming spiritual abuse as something that's real. And it's a legitimate form of abuse. And it's something we have to talk about in this larger conversation. And particularly as we deal with the fallout of a post-Roe America here as clinicians, this has to be a form of abuse we're prepared to
1: work with.
0: I'm so glad that you went there, Jamie. And it brings up a lot of questions and comments for me. For our listeners that are feeling lots of things right now, watching their clients feel lots of things right now, like this is a lot. This is a lot for us to unpack. This is a lot for us to even begin to cover in an hour. But as we start this conversation, kind of as we are conceptualizing it as clinicians, this idea of offering this understanding of what religious abuse is and bringing that into the room if it's appropriate with that person, and and even without necessarily discussion of religion, the idea to just simply abuse of power and our sense of powerlessness, mm-hmm. and that when we're looking at what trauma is, that's kind of inherent to the definition. Um, one of the things that I, I want to piggyback on what you said, Jamie, as we're having this conversation, I think it's easy for us to get stuck in a paradigm About pro life, pro choice, these different concepts. And one of the things that I want to introduce and just share for our listeners who may not be aware of it the AAMFT, NASW, and APA in the last number of days have all taken firm stances of disagreement with this change. Um, The APA specifically says that it ignores not only precedent, but science and will exacerbate the mental health crisis America is already experiencing and says that they are alarmed by the choice of the justices. Um, And APA also says a person's ability to control when and if they have a child is frequently linked to the socioeconomic standing and earning power. Therefore, restricting access to safe legal abortions is most likely to affect those living in poverty, people of color and sexual and gender identity minorities, as well as those who live in rural or medically underserved areas. So even the APA is saying it, NASW has said it, AAMFT is saying it. So when we're looking at this, Yes, we're three individuals having a conversation about the importance of access to reproductive care and this concept of reproductive justice, but it's also carrying down these principles that we've been handed by our national association. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Bowers?
1: Um, I think that it's super important for us to uplift and and elevate those entities taking those stances because how this plays out in real time in communities from a financial standpoint is we, we see the rise of faith based institutions receiving family planning dollars. We see an insurgence in rural communities of crisis pregnancy centers. We see folks mobilizing and creating services that appear to be one thing, but they are not what they appear to be. And so that's why it's important for us to have these stakeholders Mm -hmm. like NASW, like APA and these different folks who are, and others, there are many others, taking these stances to say, we are going to make sure that folks are educated, aware, and are equipped to deal with these folks when they encounter them in community. I'm from Tennessee, and even prior to the overturning of Roe, there was just pregnancy crisis centers literally across the street from abortion care providers, you know, naming themselves the same name, purchasing the Google identity so that their phone numbers and emails and and things will come up first when people search the internet. So, I mean, there are so many tactics that are now funded by, uh, you know, by the government. And I know in Tennessee, that is one way that we see this kind of play out in community and on the ground is that these folks are now service providers who have these really extreme religious beliefs and will stop at nothing, including using deceptive practices and impersonating medical care providers to carry out their mission. And so it's really when Jamie's talking about these concepts around spiritual abuse, holding services hostage in exchange for uh, the ability to pray for people or having meal services that where they're giving out meals. But you have to come to Bible study in order to get the toiletry bag or, you know, these kind these are the kinds of things that people are encountering in real time. And so it's important for us as providers, clinicians and servants in the community to make people aware of how this can look in practice, along with the education piece. So I think it's super important for us to talk about ethics as you brought up, also to, for people to really understand what spiritual abuse is, like what Jamie's talking about, but then also provide examples of how this can can look so that people recognize these practices when they see them.
0: Thank you for bringing that up, both of you. And I think that I know it's just speaking for myself as a clinician, my brain is trying to grab resources. And so then I start Googling and then I find myself on a website and go, whoa, whoa. And I want to talk about that because I think that this is a whole world that a lot of us have never been exposed to. So what resources do mental health professionals need to understand? And how do we help clients? How do we even discern basically what's legit and what's not and what has a capacity to just cause more harm? Right. So a, a couple
2: trigger words to really look for. And, and Beth, I'm curious, as somebody who's not been in this world for maybe you to share, like, what are those whoa signs that you see? I mean, definitely the phrase crisis pregnancy center probably, crisis health line, and I think some have even co-opted the term Women's Center, which has generally had more of a connotation of of choice and reproductive justice. You know, I did a training at one of these crisis pregnancy centers, and honestly, and I kind of cringe saying this, it was one of the more ethical ones where it, it was, they were very clear about this is what we're not, you know, we're not a medical care provider, we're not this, we're not that. But in my work in that world, I had met other crisis pregnancy centers that were definitely a lot less ethical about you know, what, what they were able to provide. And I, I just remember that what Arisha was saying about, well, yeah, you can have a meal if you come to a Bible study. That's one of the big things you want to look for, because something that was done in this program is like you know, you can have access to baby formula or diapers or clothes, but you have to use like a coupon or a voucher system for it. And how do you earn these coupons and vouchers? Oh, by coming to a client advocate session, which is what they called it instead of counseling. If you went to a church service, you could exchange that for a voucher or a coupon to get these. So I think that's something that that you definitely want to look for in terms of some of the longer term programs that they provide or, you know, attempt to provide, you know, another kind of code thing is like free and Risha can speak more to this free pregnancy test free sonogram, because there's so many horror stories of even the practice of giving somebody a sonogram being manipulative, like, Oh, look at your baby, what do you think your baby's saying to you right now, by people who essentially do not have the interest of the client at heart, because they are being motivated by this kind of quest of evangelism or proselytization or, because this is the thing that I want people to understand about a lot of the church organizations that run these. And on on one hand, this may sound like I'm letting them off the hook, but this is still a great deal of compassion that I have because there's a lot of religious people in my life. You know, I, I came from this world that so many people in these positions really feel like they are doing the right thing that this is what they are supposed to do as a Christian, that they are supposed to work a pro-life agenda, that they are supposed to save babies, quote unquote, and save souls. And a lot will mask it with that language of, we have to be there for the woman, the woman, the woman, and the more you're there for the woman, it'll save the baby. But a lot of donors to these centers are all about save babies, save babies, save babies. And this is a trait even in the spiritual abuse literature that a lot of people who spiritually abuse truly believe they're doing the right thing. And, you know, that's, that's, that's been a hard one for me to swallow, but I also relate to it, you know, knowing that when I was in that world, so much of what was harped on me is to be a good Christian, you, you have to be, you know, doing these tactics. So all that to say, I I think, especially as clinicians who might be looking at these sites and seeing some of these red flags, find out who's funding the organization. And like Arisha said, we're even in tricky area now because even government dollars can be going towards some of these centers. But but kind of find out what their mission is, what their impetus is. And I think you know we as, as clinicians, especially in the individual communities, need to know kind of where are places that are truly operating on the best interest of the individuals who come to these centers versus which are centers that really seem to have some kind of ulterior motive in play. And and so Elizabeth, I want to ask you, or uh,
0: what were some of the thing language you saw on those websites where you were like, oh no, words like counseling. When I would look at trying to find information about the staff, I wasn't uh, able to find anything, yes. or there weren't actually any medical professionals there. So that was something that stood out to me um, in just poking around. And the other thing that I stumbled across, and this is something that clinicians need to know, we need to warn clients about this, that these organizations are mining your medical data. And right now there aren't laws to protect that. So they can appear to be providing a medical service to somebody and they've gotten your social security number and your address and your protected medical information. And they're allowed to do it because you volunteered it. And so Jamie, I'm appreciating what you said about like, well, one of these organizations that was more ethical was saying we're not medical. I was sitting there going, my goodness, here I am with all of my experience. And I think I'm pretty good at picking up spam and discerning what's real and what's not. And I'm clicking away going, oh no, how did I end up here? Because it's so easy for that to happen.
1: Yes, to everything that's been previously stated. One of the resources I would like to offer here is there's an organization called Provide Inc. They do counseling and training for professionals on how to make referrals. They are a organization who is super familiar with resources in the community around family planning and reproductive health. And I recommend that anyone who would like to do a training, reach out to them. They do these trainings at no cost. You know, you just have to help organize a group of people who want to receive training. And so if there's a group of counselors who would like to uh, sit down with someone or get online with someone who is well-versed in who are your providers in your area and help you provide all the information for you to be able to make what they call star referrals. And I I can vouch for them. I did that work for a number of years in Tennessee. So I know that they're good, they're vetted, and they can tell you about a, a lot about who the crisis pregnancy centers are in your area, too. They do something called resource mapping, and they can help you to find who your providers are for these particular services. So I highly recommend if you want to get some, someone in to do some training with you and your teams, please reach out to provide And get them in to help you with that, you know, so you're not having to try to do the research on your own and things like that. And then the second thing I will say is once you get that training and once you get that list of who are your providers in your area, reach out to them
0: and make a relationship with these
1: folks so that you know who you're sending your people to.
0: Thank you for saying that, Dr. Bowers. I think too, for clinicians, it's a matter of reconsidering our role. So social workers are much better trained to walk alongside clients and connect them with resources. And I think that this is one of those moments that we all need to educate ourselves, regardless of what our specialization is. This is one of those opportunities where we need to take the lead because it's so easy to find yourself in an environment online or in person that is not what you're looking for and because there aren't many protections for the consumer you're just at the will of of basically who has the best advertising or the most coercive advertising and how easy it is to just compound what is typically already a scary and intimidating experience to be seeking reproductive care yeah. and
2: Beth, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you, because I know you've done a lot of digging in recent days and weeks about clinicians protecting themselves, because I think we're giving a lot of resources here about how we can be advocates for our clients, and I know that's a given, yet for so many of us, like I'm in Ohio, which is a state that will likely be banning in the coming weeks. Arisha, you're in a trigger state. Um,
0: what, what have you learned? So thank you for asking that, Jamie. I will qualify it again by saying, number one, I'm not an attorney. And number two, what's happening here is emerging. So what we are saying as we record this in late June 2022 could be changing really rapidly. So I want to have this huge note to our listeners to make sure that you're paying attention to what your state laws are. And I'm always encouraging folks to talk to Um, their liability insurance or the professional association in their state to get accurate, clear guidance for your particular needs, because what's happening for me in California is very different than what's happening for Jamie in Ohio. That being said, there are some complexities here. Let's talk about, for example, the concept of informed consent. Informed consent is actually a mutual process. It's in between the client and the clinician. So there are a number of concepts that open up here about informed consent. We need to inform clients upfront about what will and will not be included in their record. Um, We need to be upfront about mandated reporting. And I reached out to a behavioral health attorney in California and I said, could it happen that suddenly we're going to have mandated reporting laws change with regard to desire to terminate a pregnancy and the response that i got back was that the issue at hand is about whether or not a fetus can be construed um, as receiving a threat of bodily harm which theoretically could still be in compliance with privacy and hipaa but potentially be a legal mandate So for our listeners, I want to say that again, it is entirely possible that there could be attempts at state laws that make it a mandated report if somebody is intending to or already has terminated a pregnancy, for example. And the complexity here, and I'm going to get to it, is like, how are we documenting? But again, you need to stay in touch with your state about what's going on there. Another point that I want to make is we're considering mandated reporting, so for example if there was a situation where a minor was the victim of sexual violence that resulted in pregnancy what we would be reporting at least right now as it stands currently with the knowledge that laws may change in specific states what we would be reporting was a sexual violence not the pregnancy and that may change if states begin changing their laws about needing to report termination of pregnancy. And I bring this up because I think this needs to be part of the conversation in our disclosure toward clients. And if this information changes during our relationship with a client, because new information comes out and the laws are changing, then we need to update clients about these changes and we need to document that we let them know that there is this additional element relating to their privacy and our requirement about mandated reporting. We inform a client what we have to share with authorities, for example, or when we're mandated to break privacy. And we also need to be consenting about what's okay with us. And I think there is an ethical issue that can come up here. And what if we're not a safe space in the discussion of abortion or resources because of past experiences, because of bias? And the American Psychological Association, in consideration about bias, specifically says psychologists try to eliminate the effect on their work of biases based on those factors, and they do not knowingly participate in or condone activities of others based on such prejudices. If we know that we can't interact with somebody without bias and prejudice around a certain topic, then I would argue that there could be a potential ethical mandate there to inform clients of that ahead of time. And if we also are a safe space for discussion about reproductive rights and a place to get resources, I think another consideration that is, again, just just beginning to bubble up is how do we advertise that? How do we state that on our website? Basically, are we a safe space and Are we not? And do we have an ethical mandate to say that too? Because we know that our biases are such that we can't be a supportive resource right now, and that both of those elements would actually be part of informed consent. One note that I want to to make, when we look at the American Psychological Association Code of Ethics, just zooming in specifically to APA, so yes, this is only applying to those folks who are licensed psychologists. It says, and I quote, if psychologists ethical responsibilities conflict with law regulations or other governing legal authority, psychologists clarify the nature of the conflict, make known their commitment to the ethics code and take reasonable steps to resolve the conflict consistent with the general principles and ethical standards of the ethics code. Under no circumstances may the standard be used to justify or defend violating human rights. That's a big deal because here's the APA already written in the ethics code acknowledging that sometimes our ethical responsibilities may be in conflict with law. So I want to point that out to our listeners that if you're feeling like there's a conflict here or that there may be, you may be right. <laughs> and that's why it's important to understand what your code of ethics for your profession includes and also what the state laws are. And in terms of how we're documenting, for example, so... I reached out to a couple of documentation nerds like myself, and we had a conversation about this because there's always this question about how specific or vague our notes are going to get. And And full disclosure, we were not in complete agreement. And I actually bring this up because I think it's such a good example of the level of interpretation here. There's so much ambiguity when it comes to clinical documentation, but speaking for myself and uh, Beth Rontel, who we've heard from before on our podcast, we were both of the opinion that clinicians have within their flexibility, I guess, to decide how detailed they want to be in their documentation like how vague we're going to be in a note. So in my conversation with Beth, her example um, was, and I'm going to quote it directly, that we clinically helped client identify conflicting feelings, consequences of decisions and potential supports regarding making a significant life decision. So I'm quoting Beth Rontel there, but this idea that instead of necessarily writing intervention as talked with client about their desire to terminate their pregnancy and identified resources, we may have the option of using more vague language. For example, like Beth's quote, we helped client identify conflicting feelings, consequences of decisions and potential supports regarding making a significant life decision. In talking about it with Barbara Griswold, for example, if we're looking at a vignette where an individual is discussing... Their options and their potential desire to terminate an existing pregnancy. Barbara's position was that, for example, we could write that we helped client explore feelings about pregnancy and that that would be appropriate and arguably would hopefully not put anyone at risk regardless of state laws with the caveat that we don't really know. And the fact of the matter is, is that our notes are effectively legal documents. And so there are risks when we write vague notes and there are also risks when we write detailed notes. And at the end of the day, I think it's up to the clinician to make decisions that makes sense to them and how they uphold various legal and ethical mandates and also to reach out to their professional associations or behavioral health attorneys about specific wording if this is a population that you work with and, and how to navigate this and i'm grateful to both barbara griswold and to beth rontel for having these conversations with me as we're conceptualizing even what documentation is going to look like and how to be mindful of these implications This is always the case when we're documenting protected and um, delicate information about a client. And what I'm standing here saying as a national trainer on clinical documentation, there is not a hard and fast right or wrong way to do it. And it ultimately is going to come down to your justification and what you feel like your ethical mandate is. When in question, reach out to an attorney, talk with them about it. But I do want to just open it up there that I personally believe there are ways for us to document in a way that protects client privacy while it's still accurately documenting the content of a session. I have some strong feelings on the term safe space in general that,
2: and, and I'm not saying that you're saying this, but if you have to blast out with the microphone, I'm a safe space, then there's probably something wrong, <laughs> versus how are you demonstrating in your behavior in your conduct in 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 your, and I think in a mission statement, you can you can put things out that, you know, really let people know who you are. I mean, I, and I have a couple conflicting views on this, because I've even wondered over the years myself, like, because of my past, Surviving spiritual abuse, like in a religious context, and working in this in this space, you know, can I be a safe provider for somebody who truly doesn't know, you know, what they're doing? And ultimately, the work I've done, or what you know, what they want to do, or what they want to choose, and maybe they're like, hey, Jamie, you know, I really need to go to this crisis pregnancy center because at least I'm getting something there. Um, you know, my my mandate as a counselor, as as I see it, is I'm not to impose my agenda on people. And to me, that's the value of reproductive justice as well. Like I'm there to be there for them in whatever capacity they need. But my my mandate as somebody who's about removing stigma is that if a client asks me where I stand on something, I'm going to tell them and I'm also going to be open to have a conversation about how will this affect our therapeutic relationship and alliance positively or negatively? And does this feel like I am the best person to be serving you right now? So I think, you know, part of being clinicians that are committed to reproductive justice is we're willing to be candid and honest, but not push our agenda because, and, and I guess I, I just want to leave some of my thoughts here. When you're evaluating resources about, you know, what's safe, what's in your best interest, what's, what's this, what's that? I I think the safest people are those who are not pushing their agendas on others. And it's it's really about, hey, this is what I believe. And if you're asking me, I will tell you. But fundamentally, I'm a provider who's here to support you and whatever's coming up for you around this. And if it ever reaches a point where it feels like I can't give you the care you need, either I'm going to do my work to be able to do that, or let's explore somebody who can.
0: I appreciate you bringing up that element. And I think it goes back to that idea of informed consent where regardless of this binary that we found ourselves in as a country about being pro what our obligation is to serve a client in the way that is appropriate for them and supports their autonomy. And if we're not able to do that for any reason, then we are at that point, acting unethically. Um, and, And I'm glad you bring up that part of it. How do we as mental health professionals not carry forward these coercive practices that you've already spoken about, Jamie? How do we make it clear? And do we have some obligation? I don't have the answer to that. Sometimes our conversation is just throwing questions out into the ether that these are things that are are worth consideration for providers about how do I feel about this and how how are my feelings about this going to show up in the room and perhaps take away the autonomy of my clients. And I'll tell you this, and this is how I
2: handle it when I do EMDR training, we're in a new world, because I know how I was taught in graduate school was, yes, you know, you can't totally leave your values at the door because you bring you with you into the session yet, uh, you know, it's not appropriate to talk about things like politics or whatever in session. And I remember I was trained initially, like if a client ever asked you, what do you believe about something to really kind of turn it back on them as well? You know, why does that matter (laughs) to our process here? How would it
0: feel for you? (laughs) Yeah,
2: you know, we are in a new world when I had a relapse in some of my symptoms in 2016, after the election, and I was seeking out a clinician, to redo some of my own trauma work with i needed to know who she voted for it was just a simple question that as a consumer i felt i had the right to ask and i'm candid i you know i'm, I'm glad i felt felt with somebody who was able to work with it and, and i think even as people who look at law and ethics we have to be having these kind of conversations now um because it, it does matter Mm -hmm. a lot of our clients and I think that that's a a both sides or a middle view type of issue too because I know a lot of more conservative folks wouldn't feel safe with me if if they knew know a lot of my beliefs about whatnot but I do think it comes down to we are there to empower autonomy we're there to really be transparent if if issues like this come up and I'm saying this now in June of 2022 I don't know where law is going to take us in the coming months and in the coming years, because I read something this morning that absolutely scared the shit out of me. Like if it didn't feel dystopian already, it was that a lot of more conservative lawmakers are now going after companies that are supporting travel to other states and will will be like actively pursuing people who are trying to seek abortion health care. and. I know a lot of that is fueled by a lot of this mandate that they are feeling to wield power and control based on their religious beliefs, or, you know, just a a need to fuel power and control and a lot is happening. And we do need to stay abreast on keeping ourselves protected. So I'm glad that we looked at a lot of this, while also still keeping true to ourselves. and having conversations like this, because even as I'm sitting here, like, oh, there's still so much to unpack. Yeah. And I hope listening to this podcast has maybe inspired some listeners to continue to have a conver- you know, conversations with your colleagues or colleagues who may even s- see differently on this issue than you do, because even your disagreement with them may help you to further illuminate what you need to do right now.
0: I'm glad you bring that up, too, of, of having these conversations, and I think for clinicians to build out the the time and the space, hopefully, to consider the implications about what we're doing or what we're not doing, and that advocacy, social justice, these ideas can take lots of different forms. And how we embody that in our offices, how we support clients, being really mindful, um, Before we wrap up this conversation, I know one of the things that you had brought up, Dr. Bowers, I want to bring it up as well. We are at an unusual inflection point about privacy. You know, everybody has this online identity. How do we engage as clinicians in a responsible way online? How do we help clients navigate what's online when we, you know, we're talking about these things like pregnancy centers, but also these ideas about period tracking apps, Dr. Bowers, can you speak to some of that and some resources that you have where you lead folks when there are all these concerns about where is my information going and how could it be used?
1: Absolutely. I think it's important for folks who are using those mechanisms to do your due diligence to know, read those terms and make sure you understand, you know, what that company is is collecting me, are they sharing things, et cetera, and what their stances are, because a lot of them are making stances. I, for one, am, as a sex educator, I'm going to always tell people that those apps are helpful to people who are trying to become pregnant, as well as for folks who are trying to not become pregnant. And so my best suggestion in terms of a resource that I know does not Share information with a third party is the app Yuki that's spelled E-U-K-I. And that app was developed by Ibis Research. And it is a feminist uh, reproductive health organization that is dedicated to keeping people's information private. So they do not sell information or share information to a third party. But I think the biggest thing for folks to know about this particular topic is that some of the information can be used by law enforcement in criminalizing folks who have terminated pregnancies or may have suffered miscarriage. They're looking, they're, they're wanting to get information so that they can look into what medicines, over the counter medicines, or prescribed medicines people are taking. So it's, it really is important for you to know like when you are using apps, when you're doing any kind of electronic right. transactions, that's your footprint. So make sure you just take the time. A lot of us don't read their privacy <laughs> uh, statements, and it's super important for us to pause and take the time to see what people are going to be doing with that information before
0: we engage in using it. That just scratches the surface on on you know a deeper concept around privacy and digital footprint and how it could be used by law enforcement now that laws are changing in certain states. If you are in a more conservative state, you need to be extra diligent. That's a fact of the matter. And I want to make a note, too, there have been a number of resources that we've all thrown out in various ways. This this information will be included with the podcast show notes. It will be included as a PDF that you can download as part of the CE course so that you can easily have these resources and review them yourself just for ease of use because there's so much here and uh, Dr. Bowers and Dr. Marich have pr- provided me with a lot of information that I wanna share with you that we didn't even get to today. Um, the The bottom line of what I'm hearing, a lot of what's going on is ambiguous and we don't know, and we need to err on the side of protecting clients, I think, and protecting ourselves and making sure that we are engaging in a responsible way, not only clinically with our clients, but also supporting our clients and engaging in a, in a careful, safe, responsible way with resources that may actually be harmful to them. How do we close up this conversation? Because we've gone a lot of different places and there's still much left to be said.
2: There's two resources that I want to recommend more from a kind of philosophical, spiritual perspective for folks. And hopefully you can access them through Netflix and Hulu both. If you don't have those services, consider if it's appropriate for you uh, with privacy and whatnot to, to get a free trial. But there were two really good documentaries that have come out in recent years. One was called Reversing Row on Netflix in twenty eighteen. And I think it's especially good for clinicians to watch because it is a quote unquote both sides type of perspective where you see anti choice advocates, pro choice advocates really kind of looking at their sides. And I always tell people, you know, kinda of listen with your gut and see which which really kind of meshes with where you're at. And I mean for me when I watch it, it, it brings up a lot of shame about what I was involved with, but I'm able to see it now through this lens of power and control and coercion, and uh, a lot of what I believe, which is that so much of anti-choice legislation is, you know, about people feeling better about themselves. I think. And then an ex- another excellent documentary. Um, it's a Hulu one called uh, AKA Jane Rowe. and it's about the final days of Norma J. McCorvey, who was Jane Rowe and how really the pro-life movement used her you know very coercively very manipulatively uh, for their own purposes um, in advocacy and if, if I guess if you have any question that this is a power and control issue more than anything, uh, give those two documentaries a look with with a really kind of critical eye and I think that will help you to discern. A lot of the resources that you see out there and will continue to see out there in the coming weeks and months.
1: Uh, There's four resources that I would also like to add for folks who are interested in learning more about reproductive justice in particular. One book is called Undivided Rights, and it is Women of Color Organized Reproductive Justice by Loretta Ross and Elena Gutierrez. There is also Pregnancy and Power which is an excellent book by Ricky Solinger, Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts. And I particularly recommend reading that book if you would like to look deeper into this idea around how these particular policies impact people of color and how this is a organized and concerted effort that did not start with this particular conversation. This particular book will give you some more insight into how this kind of policy, as well as other types of policies, have been targeting and commodifying Black bodies for centuries. And then lastly, there is Women of Color and the Reproductive Rights Movement by Jennifer Nelson, another amazing resource for folks who are interested in really understanding the input of women of color and how women of color have shaped reproductive justice and the reproductive health and rights movement. So that is a book that I highly recommend also.
0: Thank you both. We're recording this when there are so many changes happening around us and I know, speaking for myself, I am looking to folks like you for clarity and for guidance, and I so appreciate you spending this time with us. I also encourage our listeners, Dr. Marich will be having a longer conversation with Dr. Bowers uh, and releasing that as well through her channels. So if you're wanting to learn more and hear specifically from these two individuals, I highly recommend it. Um, Thank you both for taking time out of what you do on the day-to-day to to share this information with us and, and help us make sense of what's going on and how we can be part of healing and and moving forward in this new context.
1: Thanks for giving us the platform. Absolutely. Thank you for having us tonight.
0: You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.